Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21, 22. Matthew 22, verse 41. This is where we are in the Gospel of Matthew as we preach our way to the end. I want to start by asking a question. Real simple question. The glorious answer. But I want you to realize that me asking this question, this is just not a just not me just introducing a sermon. This is so important. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I know everybody in this room has heard that question before. And I think sometimes that's the problem. We're just too familiar with it. We're too familiar with the name Jesus. We're too familiar with the word Lord. Please. I even got this written on the paper. Please do not be numb to this question. Who is Jesus? It's the most famous man in history. Most famous man in history is named Jesus. And yet, so few people know who he really is. Most of the people on earth, in, in some form or fashion, have heard the name Jesus, but they have no idea who he really is. Most of the people in this room, grown up, or maybe you're a kid in this room right now, you're growing up right now, and you're just, you're just constantly hearing about this man named Jesus, and you have no idea who he is. Who is Jesus? The answer to that is mind-boggling. And it's life-changing. And I want you to realize this, if you don't already, most of you do. Praise God, most of you do. Your eternity, your eternal destiny depends on how you answer this question. And it can't, I mean, it really cannot be overstated. There, there will never be anything more important than the answer to this question, who is Jesus? Who is this man? We're fixing to look at it in Matthew 22. Who is this man that's arguing with these religious elite? Who, who is this man that's about to be nailed to a tree in a couple of weeks, a couple of chapters? The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they labor to answer this question. They're written to answer that question in hope that you might believe and be saved. John says it clearly. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing that, you might have life in his name. Jesus is the Christ Jesus is the son of the living God. And if you believe 
that and in all the things about him, you are forgiven and you have everlasting life. If you don't know that, if you don't believe that, you're damned. Woe to you. Your eternal destiny depends on your identity of Jesus. And let me tell you, how you identify Jesus is going to sh be shown in how you respond. So how you identify Jesus determines how you respond to Jesus. So think about how that works. If you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, then his death is special. His death and resurrection really does secure your total forgiveness and you will trust in nothing else for righteousness in life. If you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, then guess what? He really does have all authority in heaven and on earth and you have no problem joyfully bowing your knee and pledging to him everlasting allegiance. So please, this is, don't think of what we do here every Sunday. It's so routine. Consider these questions as we look at this passage. Who is Jesus and how is that affecting my life? Really? Let's pray to that end. Jesus, we confess that you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You are my Lord and my God. And flesh and blood did not reveal that to me or anybody in this room. But grace. Lord, we praise you for the grace to know that you are our Lord. To know you and to be known by you. And I pray that you would pour out the Spirit of God on your church. That you would add to your number. That you would open blind eyes. That you would pull those out of this bog of indifference to Jesus. And you would show them your glory. And you would give us hearts to love the one we haven't seen. Lord, please help us. Don't let us be cold to these things. Don't let us be cold to your glory. Thank you so much for your mercy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Before we read this passage, Matthew 22, verse 41, I want to talk a little bit about identity politics. Now, I use that little phrase to get your attention, number one. But I also use that little phrase, identity politics, because I want you to I want to get your mind thinking about what, what's been happening here. What's what's happening in Matthew's account of Passion Week? This Passion Week has been all about some identity politics, but not the kind that we're used to hearing about on Fox News and in the American political landscape. But instead, I want to use that term as something really, really simple. And we've seen it playing out since Jesus came to Jerusalem, and it's this. 
identity determines authority. This is identity politics. The concept is real simple. Identity determines authority. If you're a police officer, that's your identity. If you're a police officer, you have the authority to tell me to stop speeding. If you're the president of the United States, you have more authority than the police officer. If you're the high priest, you have authority over the temple. And if you're God, guess what? You have authority over every man and every molecule in the universe. Identity <laughs> politics. Identity determines authority. And this is exactly what we've seen play out in these last two chapters. So the, so the answer to this big question, who is Jesus, actually has big implications. Because his identity is going to determine his authority. And we've seen this uh, established and contested over and over so far. We saw the triumphal entry, which really identified him as the son of David. Jesus didn't roll into town quietly. He came in riding a donkey like the prophet Zechariah said he would. With everybody shouting these messianic declarations, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And no wonder it says in verse, chapter 21, verse 10, it says the whole city was stirred up. Saying, who is this? Who is this? Because identity determines authority. And this sort of fanfare is, is saying loud and clear, this man is the son of David. This man is the Christ. He is the king of the Jews. And then he came and just cleaned out the temple. Flipping tables and whipping money changers out into the streets. Who does that? Who has authority to do that? He did it twice. The first time in John, he said this, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He identified himself. God is his father. This is his father's house. I'm God's son. Who, who has the authority to cleanse God's house? God's son, though. This is why the religious leaders, the temple authorities, challenged him with basically this question. Who do you think you are? And so that's what we've been seeing is they've been challenging his authority. We've seen five hostile questions so far aimed at his identity or aimed at his authority or aimed at both. When they first came into town, the chief priests and the scribes said, Hey, did you hear what they're saying about you? Jesus quoted Psalm 8. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes, you have prepared praise. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's identifying himself. He's explaining Psalm 8. He's using Psalm 8 to explain what's been going on. Because Psalm 8 is about children praising Yahweh. 
and him being vindicated over his enemies. Jesus is identifying himself as Yahweh and them as God's enemies. And then they all get together and they come to him. By what authority are you doing these things? And he gives them one question and three parables. And they all identify himself as the rejected son of God and them as the ones that are about to be crushed. And then the Pharisees come and they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes? He just simply gives them a little simple answer, which is stunning. And it actually is an indirect way of saying what he would say plainly to Pilate later, my kingdom is not of this world. Again, identifying himself as God's king, the son of David, the son of God. And then the resurrection-denying Sadducees come and they come up with this absurd scenario about whose wife will she be. And he responds, demonstrating his authority to interpret scripture and their ignorance of it. And then the Pharisees give it one more try and they ask, which one's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers them simply and correctly and profoundly. And now at this point, it's Jesus' turn. Now he's going to ask them a question. And in, in, in an astounding way, he's going to, again, establish his identity and he's going to establish his authority from the scriptures. That's what's happening. Read with me. Matthew 22, verses 41 to the end. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. So let's set the scene here. I want you to, I want you to understand what's, what's developing. Developing here. Jesus is about to ask them a question. Who is he about to ask a question? The Pharisees. It says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together. And you see that first word, now? So, so this, is, this is happening immediately in connection with what happened before. When this Pharisee lawyer came and asked about the greatest commandment. And notice the, the same phrase up in verse 34. It says, when the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So here's the Pharisee leaders gathered together to confront Jesus. But this is not a private conversation. This conflict is, again, taking place in the midst of the temple, in the midst of a large crowd. Keep that in mind. It's not just the Pharisees who hear this. This is a public declaration, and so is the woes that's about to come in the next chapter. 
So look at the next chapter, 23 verse 1. You see the crowds are there. So he, he has this conversation we're studying this week, and he says, Then Jesus said to the crowds that were there and his disciples that were there. And the parallel passage in Mark talks about when he finishes this section we're on right now about David's Lord. It says the great throng, these crowds, heard him gladly. And so this conflict, for now, with the religious leaders is happening in the public square. But it's interesting how they're all coming together against Jesus. Because much like our own government, they don't normally get along very well. They're not normally on the same page, but man, they are now. You get this divided group that has now found a common enemy. You got all these factions. Just watch how this is coming together now and how it comes together towards the end. You got all these factions in Jerusalem. You got King Herod, whose authority is actually uh, subjected to Rome. You got the Romans who hated the Jews. You got the Jews who hated the Romans. You got this religious ruling class who, who, who are the first to confront Jesus, but even this group is divided. We've talked about it many times before. The main division here was the Sadducees and Pharisees. They were enemies even in the same group. So what we're witnessing here is this normally divided group, these, all these factions all of a sudden finding common ground in their desire to shut Jesus up. Because he's challenging their authority. You, you see, all of them progressively uniting against Jesus. First the chief priests and scribes talk about, do you hear what they're saying? And then they all come together as a group, the Sanhedrin. And say, what, what, authority, or what authority are you doing these things? And then the Pharisees try to trap him with the tax question. And then the Sadducees try to get him on the resurrection. And now the Pharisees are back again with the greatest commandment. They're all coming together against him. So don't miss one of the things that Matthew is presenting here. Matthew is alluding to the unfolding of Psalm 2. You got chief priests and scribes indignant with Jesus. You got the Sanhedrin unite to challenge his authority in the public square. You got the Pharisees says that they plot, they're plotting to entangle him in his words. And now we see this phrase, they're gathered together against Christ. Matthew is echoing language from Psalm 2. A psalm, by the way, that's inseparable from Psalm 110 that Jesus quotes here. Let me just remind you what Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and his anointed. That's exactly what's going on here. That's exactly what's starting to unfold here. The rulers are taking counsel together against the Lord's anointed. Literally, the religious rulers have gathered together against the Messiah. Psalm 2, written a thousand years 
earlier is unfolding before our eyes. And later in Acts 4, Peter and his disciples are going to realize it. It's going to like it's going to snap in their head. And they're going to say, man, we just lived through Psalm 2. And then they just pray. They pray to God. They pray Psalm 2 back to him and say, truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And so we're watching the conflict predicted in Psalm 2 actually unfold. And now Jesus is fixing to go on the offensive with this one final question. Whose son is Messiah? See that in verses 41 and 42. It says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a singular question. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, I want you to take note of the contrast between Jesus' question to them and their their previous questions to him. They asked questions about temple authority, politics, taxes. They bring up these silly scenarios about the resurrection. They try to get him into a nitpicky debate about which one of the 600 plus commandments is the best. Jesus cuts right through it all, cuts through the religion, cuts through the politics, and gets to the real question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? You've asked me these questions, now let me ask you one. What's your opinion of Messiah? More more importantly, who is he, really? Notice Jesus asked one question four different ways. The one question is, whose son is Messiah? If you count the question marks in this passage, you'll see four of them. But all four are simply an attempt an attempt to get them to consider one question more deeply. Whose son is Messiah? He says it, verse 42. Whose son is he? And they quickly reply, the son of David. So they give the correct answer. They give the easy answer. He's David's son. Any good Jewish boy would know the answer to this question instinctively. Just reflex. Boom. David's son. Know that. And the Old Testament scriptures make it abundantly clear that the Messiah would come from the direct lineage of King David. The promised seed of the woman would come through Noah, through his son Shem, through his descendant Abraham, through his sons Isaac and Jacob, and through Jacob's 12 sons, the Messiah would come through Judah, and then this long line of descendants, God promised David. He said to David, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. And this son of yours, David, that I'm promising, he's going to build me a house. He's going to build a house for my name. And I'm going to establish his throne, his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. 
That was a promise that God made to David. And so they get it right. They get it right. The Messiah would be David's son, but that answer is deficient. And it's deficient because they have failed to harmonize Scripture. And so Jesus uses a, a common technique in, in biblical debating, and he offers a counter quotation with Psalm 110 to deepen the question. It's, it's, this is what he's saying. Yeah, Messiah is David's son, but what about Psalm 110? What about that? Let's see if you put the pieces together. See what he says. He says in verse 42, they said to him, the son of David, they answered. And he says, okay. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, and he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So notice, notice what Jesus is doing. He, he doesn't desi- deny that the Messiah would come through David, but he wants them to see a greater identity from a very familiar text. Essentially, he's asking him, how do you reconcile what David himself says in Psalm 110? And so turn to Psalm 110 real quick, and you just keep, keep your fingers in both places if you can. While you're turning there, I want to alert you to something that you may or may not know. That is that Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. Direct quotation at least eight times, and then everywhere in the New Testament where you see this concept of Christ being seated at the right hand of God, somehow you'll find a connection back to Psalm 110. This is how important this text is. Psalm 110 is also an oracle, a prophecy, a decree, a declaration, it's a message. It's an oracle of Yahweh to David's Lord. One of my favorite living theologians is James Hamilton Jr. He's, he's an excellent Hebrew translator, and I love the way he translates this first phrase. An oracle of Yahweh to my Lord. So read it that way, an oracle of Yahweh to my Lord. Now, if, if, if you write in your Bible, this is a real good place to write a little identifier above the three parties in this opening sentence. The Lord said to my Lord. The first one is where you see L-O-R-D in all caps. Write the word Yahweh. It, most of you probably know this, but some of you may not. Whenever you see, in the the Old Testament, whenever you see the word L-O-R-D in all caps, that's sort of like a cover word for God's proper, holy, covenant name, Yahweh. So that first L-O-R-D, all caps, that, that is God's name. That's God. So write God or Yahweh. That's who's talking there. And then it says, Yahweh said to my 
M-Y. That's David. Right, David there. Because as you can see in the subscription there, a psalm of David, you can see, and to Jesus' point, David's the one who wrote this. So David's the one saying this. And then the other L-O-R-D, which you notice is not all caps, means Master, Sovereign, Lord. That's Messiah or Christ. And so in other words, Yahweh said to David's Lord, this is what's going on there. And so Psalm 110 is a message or an oracle or a prophecy or a decree. It's a message from Yahweh through David to Christ. That's what that is. Message from Yahweh through David to Christ. And Jesus is pointing them to this psalm to provoke deeper thought about this one question. Whose son is Messiah? Messiah is David's son, but why does David call his future son Lord? Think about how important ancestry was in Jewish culture. How important are ancestors and genealogies in the history of Israel? Real important. And believe, me, believe this, a father was higher than a son or a grandson. The, the writer of Hebrews even goes so far uh, to, to prove that this man named Melchizedek was greater than this man Levi because Levi was still in Abraham's loins when Abraham paid tithe to him. Like that's the hierarchy. Levi's nothing. He ain't even born yet. So would a father ever call his son Lord? Especially somebody like King David. Like, don't forget how high King David is. Don't forget how high King David is in, uh, in the mind of Israel, in redemptive history. Like, who in the world is higher? This is the preeminent king of Israel. Who's further up the ladder? Moses, maybe? Abraham, maybe? What about one of David's sons, any of them. Would David call Solomon Lord? Think about that. Now, Solomon is pretty high up there. Just go read 1 Kings about the glory of Solomon. This man had wisdom, literally, wisdom from God beyond measure. He had more money, he had more wisdom, more riches, more everything than any man or any king on earth. Would David call Solomon Lord? No. To Jesus' point, then, how is it that David calls his son Lord? Whose son is he, then? These teachers of Israel have probably never considered this question. To me, this, this moment echoes uh, that time when Nicodemus, who's, who's one of these religious leaders, came to Jesus by night. And Jesus ultimately told him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? They don't understand this. 
This is probably the first time they've ever been confronted with this thought. David calls his son Lord. And they probably love Psalm 110. They probably loved Psalm 110 because they hated the Romans. They probably talked about Psalm 110 all the time. Man, when, when Messiah comes, man, he's going to crush these Romans under his feet, not realizing they're the enemies of Christ. You see, they were too busy laying legalistic burdens on people and straining gnats and showing off in public and discussing politics instead of humbling themselves and trembling at God's word in real search of the truth. Whose son is Messiah? Psalm 110 already had an answer for that. And so in quoting this line from Psalm 110, Jesus is going to give us all a lesson in two big categories of theology. One, in hermeneutics, we're going to see how Jesus reads and understands scriptures. And in Christology, we're going to see how Jesus understands who Christ is from scripture. So look at this. Look, look at Jesus giving us another glimpse into his hermeneutic, into how he reads the Old Testament. Remember what he just did with the Sadducees up in verse 31? We saw a little bit of his hermeneutic there. They question the resurrection, and Jesus points them to one of the most well-known passages in the Torah, which they loved. And he says, as for the resurrection from the dead, have you not read? Have you not read what was said to you by God? Kind of like, have you not read what David in the Spirit said to you? And what did God say to them a long time ago in the Torah? It says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. So Jesus is saying, you've, been, you've read this a thousand times, but you must not have paid attention. God says, I am, present tense, I am God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, how can God say that? How can God say that if the dead are not raised and Abraham died 400 years earlier, how can that be? You missed it. Well, Abraham must still be alive. Because God is not the God of the dead. And so Jesus is teaching them, and he's teaching us how to read the scriptures more carefully. And here's four things we can learn about Jesus' understanding of Psalm 1. Ten. First, who wrote it? Jesus is declaring right here and now that Psalm 110 was written by David. The little superscription there in Psalm 110 says, A Psalm of David. Huh? That's good enough. But you know what's better? Jesus said so. Jesus said so. That's what he's doing right now. I don't care who. You, I don't care how many PhDs you have behind your name, and you tell me that Psalm 110 was written by anybody other than David, you're a liar. Jesus says so. Right here, it says, Jesus says that David in the Spirit calls the Messiah Lord, meaning David wrote that. As a matter of fact, if David didn't write Psalm 110, Jesus is a liar. 
And David never called Messiah Lord, which is the whole argument here. Second thing we can pick up from Jesus is that he's declaring that Psalm 110 was written by not only David, but the Holy Spirit. How is it then that David in the Spirit said or calls him Lord? Jesus is declaring the inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Yeah, men like David wrote Psalm 110, but under the inspiration of the Spirit. Peter, who's witnessing this conversation, by the way, will later say that the Bible was put together by men who, from God, who spoke from God, that were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He also will call David a prophet in Acts 2. And he will also say that the prophets wrote what they wrote because the Spirit of Christ was in them. What a fascinating thing. What a fascinating thing to, to see that. That the Holy Spirit that inspired men to write the Old Testament was the Spirit of Christ in them, writing about Christ and the sufferings and subsequent glories. And here is Jesus pointing that out. How does he know? Because he did it. Psalm 110, written by David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and written about the Messiah. This is the whole point. He asked the question, what do you think about the Christ? And then he quotes Psalm 110. So you put this together with other teachings in the New Testament, and you can conclude that the Psalms of David are about Jesus. They're about Christ. The Psalms are not first and foremost about you. They're ultimately about Christ. And in a sense, they're even written to Christ. And this Psalm actually speaks to the nature and the identity and the authority of Christ. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. So Jesus, the fourth thing we learn here is that he's applying this psalm to himself. He's not just having a theological debate with these men for fun. This moment is on the eve, the very precipice of the most serious moments in redemptive history. This exchange, this question and counter Quotation is all about the identity and the authority of this man who just rolled into Jerusalem on a donkey. Psalm 110 is about Jesus, and Jesus is far more than just David's son. He is David's Lord. And so we learn hermeneutics from Jesus, and we also learn Christology from Jesus here. Jesus is saying by this implicitly that he's far more than David's son. This is the thrust of the argument. That the Messiah is more than just a mere human. He's divine. He's from heaven. The Messiah is more than a man. Now, I don't normally do this, but I want to quote a couple of commentators just to see how, just to show you how many different ways this is expressed so well, better than I could. Think of this. John Brodus says, to account the Messiah merely a man is hopelessly inconsistent with Scripture. 
D.A. Carson says, yes, Jesus is son of David by title and genealogy. But what Jesus is doing here is synthesizing this concept of human Messiah in David's line with the concept of a divine Messiah that transcends human limitations. Craig Lomberg says, we must understand Jesus to be asking, how can the Messiah be merely a human descendant of Israel's great king? Jesus is criticizing the view of Davidic lineage by itself as inadequate. And W.C. Allen says, to the point, the Messiah is not only the Son of God, but the Son, excuse me, not only the Son of David, but the Son of God. This is what Peter has already confessed in chapter 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what John says is that you have to understand and believe in order to have eternal life in his name. Jesus is David's son and he's David's Lord. Matthew, the first few words in the New Testament declares that Jesus is David's son and a thousand years earlier, David himself identifies this future son to be his Lord. A thousand years earlier, like, take note of the timing here in Psalm 110. When he writes this, the Lord says to my Lord, he's describing his unborn son as Lord. Now, present tense, at the time of publication, a thousand years before Jesus would ever be born. How can that be? Hebrews gives us an answer. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus himself has already given one group of these Pharisees an answer a year earlier, and they tried to kill him when he said it. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. But guess what? Before Moses was, I am. Before Adam was, Most certainly before David was. He was. He was. So Jesus is David's son and God's son. If you're still in Psalm 110, you see more of the deity of Christ than just David calling him Lord. Look at verse 1. God tells Christ to sit at my right hand. Now, what mere mortal could ever sit at God's right hand? And, and by the way, if you, if you think about kings, kingships and thrones and such, the only one who ever gets to sit at the right hand of a king is a king's son. Jesus is God's son. And in verse 2, God swears an oath to Christ that he would be a priest forever. Well, no son of David would ever be allowed to serve as king and priest. But now this son of David to come abolishes this old and establishes a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And he's the only one, by the way, because he's going to be a priest forever, immortal, everlasting, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And then in verse 5, David says that not only is Christ at his right hand, he's at Christ's right hand. 
Christ sits at the right hand of God. God acts at the right hand of Christ to shatter kings in the day of his wrath. In other words, the Messiah wields the very power of God. What man could ever do that but the Son of God? And in verse 6 it says Christ is going to execute judgment among the nations, not just Israel. No man has ultimate authority to judge the world in righteousness except a man named Jesus. That right belongs exclusively to God. And God has granted that to his son. Jesus himself said so and they hated him for this too. He said the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. Jesus is David's son. And God's son. He is the Lord of lords. David was the Lord, lowercase l. Jesus is his Lord. He's also the king of kings. I mean, look at Psalm 110. He's going to shatter kings. This king is going to shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He's going to execute judgment among the nations. He's going to shatter heads. He's going to crush heads. He's going to crush chiefs. That's a footnote, by the way. Chiefs. Heads over the wide earth. He's not just king of the Jews like his father David. He's king over all like his father God. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. We're going to hear Jesus say that in chapter 28. So who is Jesus? Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Man, it seems so clear now that Christ has come. It seems so clear now that we have the the New Testament. But it was there all along in the Old Testament. And this is exactly what Jesus is pointing to. They all missed it. The mystery of Christ, Paul says, hidden in plain sight. But the Christ is the God-man. Listen. Listen to Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And he's going to sit on the throne of David forever. So right there, Christ is going to be a natural born man who bears the name Mighty God. And I love this. Isaiah 11, Jeremiah And then later, the Christ is described as the root and the shoot of David. Think about that imagery. I understand the shoot of David. Here's David. Now it comes an offshoot, offspring, son. But he's also the root. Jesus says, I am the root. Last page of the Bible. I am the root of and the descendant of David. What a glorious statement. 
What a glorious statement. How can that be? Well, I can tell you. Jesus is David's son and he's his Lord. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, how do these learned biblical scholars respond to this glorious revelation? Silent, wicked, hard-hearted rejection. Look at what it says. Jesus presents the text, Psalm 110, and he asks this question, if then David calls him Lord, how is his how is it he is his son? And what's the response? Crickets. It says, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is it. This is the last of this back and forth conversation between Jesus and the religious elite until they arrest him and condemn him in chapter 26. So we see here that David's Lord has silenced his enemy. Mark's gospel says the great throng heard him gladly, but the religious leaders were silent. The text says, notice how it says this, no one was able to answer him a word. They had no response to this question. They they were not able to give him an answer because they did not know the answer. And do you want to know why they did not know the answer to a question about a text they knew so well? It's because just as God's word is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's also understood by the power of the Holy Spirit. They lacked the Spirit of God. Paul says the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolish to him because, why? He's not able. He's not able to understand because these things are spiritually discerned. They thought they were biblical scholars, but they didn't understand the Bible. They knew Psalm 110 by heart, but they didn't have the heart to understand Jesus Christ. And then it says no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is revealing. They didn't even dare to ask him any more questions. But here's the, 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 the public gathering against the Lord's anointed are now over. Why? Because they were whipped. They were no match for the wisdom of God incarnate. And they were tired of being publicly humiliated. There's part of their problem. Pride. They didn't dare ask him another question. Instead, they're going to conspire behind closed doors to take him by night and kill him. But now, get this. Because I think there's more right here. Jesus' aim was not merely to put them in their place. Though he did. But his question is so full of grace. Don't miss the grace in this question. If forgiveness and eternal life is completely contingent on a right understanding and wholehearted faith in Christ, the Christ of Scripture, then what? What, I ask you this, what could be more gracious than the Christ himself, the Messiah himself, being slow to anger in front of his rebellious creatures and offering to show them the truth about himself from Scripture? 
What could be more gracious than that? Don't view this last paragraph as a Jesus mic drop. See this as Jesus ready and willing, even to the greatest of the enemy, the hardest of hearts, ready and willing to offer an explanation to anybody who wants to know the answer to this last question. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Guess what? Nobody says a word. Man, think about that. Nobody says, oh my goodness. Jesus, tell me more about that. I I, I never seen that. Why didn't nobody say that? Because these wicked men refuse to hear the truth. Think about this opportunity. Man, anybody, anybody with even the slightest heart for the truth would do anything to hear an explanation of the Messiah about how can David call his own son his Lord? Tell me more about that. That's crazy. But their only aim is to trap him or discredit him or to shut him up or kill him. They have no interest in the truth. And they really have no love for Scripture. And this may very well be their last chance. Because look at what's coming up. Look at how Jesus is going to respond to their response. He's going to respond to their hard-hearted rejection of the truth. Just look at the subtitles in chapter 23. Seven woes from Lord. Seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Then this lament over Jerusalem. Man, this is the connection here. This is the connection between this passage and the one before it. And this is the connection to the woes of the judgment that's going to come next. Woe to you who hate God, hate neighbor, and hate Jesus Christ. You see how this fits between these two blocks? The greatest commandment, love God. The greatest, the second one, love man. And guess what? The greatest sin, therefore, is an informed rejection of the God-man. Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed. The writer of Hebrews warns Judaizers. He says anyone of the severity of this, rejecting Christ. He says anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Paul says, Paul, by the way, who very well might have been in this audience. <laughs> Paul says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Man, all these men, all these men had to do was respond like those blind men on the road to Jerusalem. Remember that? As Jesus is coming in, what did they say? Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Believe he is the Christ. Call on him as Lord and beg him for mercy. But they would not. They refused to come to him that they may have life. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. Their rejection 
was proof that they were not servants of the Lord, but enemies of the Lord, soon to be crushed under their feet. And they were more blind than those two men who had never seen the light of day. Now, what's the application to us? Well, the first one is what do you think about Christ? Not y'all, not plural, not what y'all think about Christ. What do you think about Christ? Do you really believe? Because this is eternal life, Jesus said. That they know you, the one true and living God, and the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. Do you know Christ? Who is Jesus? Whose son is he? What's your opinion of him? Is, is he just another religious figure from history? Just another guru with some really good tips, some really good sayings to live by? Or is he the most boring topic on the planet? Be tired of mommy and daddy talking about it. Tired of coming to church and hearing about it. Is it boring? Who is he? Are you tired of hearing about Jesus or is Jesus glorious to you? Do you get the magnitude of his person? He really is God in the flesh. That man is nailed to the cross. He's the only acceptable sacrifice for sin because he is the son of the living God. The one God promised. The one God sent. Do you believe these things? That he really was raised from the dead on the third day. And he is in heaven now at the right hand of God. Interceding. Putting his enemies at his feet or under his feet. What do you think about Christ? How will you respond? Will you respond like the Pharisees? With indifference? With rejection? I don't want his authority. Or we respond like the blind man. We said, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David. The second takeaway is to rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit in evangelism. Man, whether it's street preaching or, or coffee with a co-worker, or that bedtime story with your little boy or your little girl. Preach Christ and rely on the Holy Spirit. Apologetics don't work without the Holy Spirit. You can see right here, good logic, lots of good biblical gotchas and eloquent words of wisdom are worthless without the Spirit of Christ being poured out from on high. Preach Christ and pray. And then pray some more. And then pray some more. And keep praying until the Spirit of Christ saves somebody. Give the Lord no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in all the earth. Third application, read the Bible more carefully and more Christologically. In other words, be like Christ. Romans 8 says we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, conform your Bible reading to the hermeneutic of Jesus Christ. Please, read all the Bible, but what's your hurry? Keep reading all the Bible, but slow down. Chew it. Chew it slowly. 
Don't just chomp and swallow. Move on. Read the Bible more carefully like Jesus did. Consider every word. Consider every phrase, every verb tense, every plural, every singular. Who's writing it? Why are they writing it? What are they saying? What does it mean? Read the Bible more carefully. Read the Bible more Christologically like Jesus did. Don't read the Bible just looking for yourself. Read the Bible looking for Christ. Abraham saw my day and was glad, Jesus said. Moses wrote about me, Jesus said. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him, John said. And guess what? David called him Lord back then in the Old Testament. Enjoy Christ in all of Scripture. And last, is Jesus your Lord? He's David's Lord. Is he your Lord? Is this really true? Is Jesus your master? Is Jesus your king? Do you fear him? Do you trust him? Do you worship him? Do you love him? Do you depend on him? Do you make it your aim to please him? Are his commandments burdensome? Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is Jesus your Lord? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Is he your Lord? You profess Christ. John says, if anybody says they know Christ but doesn't keep his commandments, they're a liar and the truth's not in them. Is Jesus your Lord? David says, Jesus is my Lord. Look, the Bible teaches that every human soul is going to find themselves at the feet of Jesus. You're going to either be like Mary, joyfully sitting at the feet of Jesus, beholding his face forever, or you're going to be like these Pharisees, enemies of Christ, crushed under his feet forever. Why? Because God has highly exalted him. And has bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every single knee shall bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess. Guess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. He's David's Lord. And I'm here to profess to you that Jesus is my Lord and my God. And I know that this room is full of people who really claim the same thing. And listen, I want us to show, I want us to put that on display. Let us show this fallen, hard-hearted, he will not rule over us world. says, Jesus still reigns. He reigns in my life. Jesus is Lord. Lord of heaven, darling of heaven, redeemer, master, and friend. 
praise you for your grace. Lord Jesus, you have done what none of us could do. You continue to do what none of us can do. You saved us. You hold us fast. You deliver us to the end. Lord, I pray that you would extend grace to more and more people. That they may behold your face. And they may be in that wonderful chorus. Holy, holy, holy. Worthy is the Lamb. Thank you for your word, Lord. You're so patient with us. How many times have you shown us that we were just like these Pharisees? Continue to reveal your glory to us and your people. Make us more like you till you come. In your name we pray, amen.